Good morning, afternoon, and evening. Welcome to the 8311 cast with your hosts, Kyle Mersch, Mike Ludwig, and Wyatt Teeter. Let's kick it off today by getting right into that tremendous Cyclone win on Saturday against formerly ranked number six West Virginia. Mike, do you want to take it away with some WVU game day highlights? Yeah, so so our game day highlights for that was it was it was the Brock Purdy David Montgomery show on offense, right? We racked up 189 yards on the ground for David Montgomery. Brock Purdy threw for 254 yards. Only blip on the radar for that uh, Cyclone offense was Brock Purdy's one interception where I almost think he forgot that we were wearing black this week instead of white and thought the West Virginia linebacker was actually his wide receiver. I've watched that play like three times and can't figure out why he thought that that wasn't going to get intercepted. There was no really disguise on that coverage. So I can't really figure out what he was looking at besides the fact that he just thought that was his wide receiver. Which is completely fair because the Cyclones don't normally wear black. This is our first season debuting the all-black uniforms. It also leads to a cool stat is that uh, Iowa State is now has the highest winning percentage of any team in the state of Iowa while wearing black. Suck it, Iowa. <laughs> but yeah, all around, all around it was a great game for the Cyclones. The only blip overall would have been the kicking game. Missed one extra point, missed one field goal. Had another blocked field goal that was turned for a touchdown. But the defense, right, that was the story of the game. The defense only gave up like just over 150 yards to what had been a, an extremely potent West Virginia offense leading into that game. West Virginia did not cross midfield after the first quarter. In the last three quarters, they did not cross midfield. It's just an astounding performance from that Cyclone defense. There were times where Will Greer had five, six seconds to throw the football, and he wasn't able to find a receiver. The secondary was just plastering those wide receivers. They were covering them. There was nowhere for him to throw the ball. That led to multiple sacks against three-man rushes where you should not be able to sack a quarterback against a three-man rush. A quarterback should be able to find a receiver if there's five or six seconds. That was just phenomenal play by the secondary. The the coverage really showed up. Um, our secondary came out with one interception this week and just really locking down Will Greer. Will Greer, uh, in 15 attempts, only threw for 100 yards in the game. And this is the Will, Will Greer that had been in Heisman contention for the majority of the season so far. And... He just didn't have anywhere to throw the ball or any time at all whatsoever. The defense, I believe, came up with six sacks. The Iowa State record on that is seven sacks in a game, so we were one shy of that. But six sacks while only rushing four at times and not even blitzing, we had an immense amount of pressure up front. And that was without Ray Lima, too, one of our captains, two captains on defense for the game. He was out with an injury, so... Very good job by the front four, um, and just an incredible job coverage by the back four. Hey, hey, hey Kyle, we, we, we won a 3-4 defense, not a 4-3. We only have th- three guys up front instead of four. Generally, we're rushing. We rushed four, though, but, but, in this game. But they're not the four guys up front. It's the three guys up front and the linebacker. We rush four. You should you should figure out what, what our defensive scheme is before you start to comment on, on the game. <laughs> just Just a thought. We don't have a front four. That's we have enough a front for Mike. Three. Okay, I'm just I'm just gonna leave, and Kyle's gonna take the rest of the episode. Apparently, so good luck talking about Jimmy Butler later. You know nothing about basketball, so I'm gonna wreck you in fantasy basketball. Oh, throwing shade already. He's gonna lose all of his players to injury this year. 
again. Good luck with that. Anyway, back to that uh, Cyclone football game. The uh, play that really uh, really sealed the game for Iowa State uh, obviously generated a lot of excitement uh, here among the uh, 8311 crowd. It was that safety against Real Greer late in the fourth quarter that turned it into a uh, to a 30 to 14 lead for the Cyclones. I know that play happened right in front of all of us, and that was just we were just going nuts when that safety call happened. We were super pumped about that safety. That safety is now uh, number five on my list of top ever sports plays in my lifetime. That was phenomenal. Just an, an incredible environment at Jack Trice Stadium. And, oh man, I just, I just can't even describe what it was like to be in Jack Trice Stadium for that game. Those Cyclone fans were just phenomenal. They were amazing. They wanted the safety. The band wanted the safety, which is where we were sitting. The ref milked it for all he was worth. He, he waited on that safety call as he was talking to the box. That was just that was amazing. That was the highlight of the game, I think, in my personal opinion. I'm also the guy who loves safeties, though. That is my absolute favorite result of a play in football is a safety. Next to a one-point safety. The only thing that could have made it better is two refs coming together and both nodding in agreement and putting up the safety call at the same time. What game was that? That even that was the Dolphins there? versus the Patriots yeah, last yeah. year. Oh, I do remember that. That, that was amazing. Great. That was great. So here's the question. So obviously, right, we West Virginia's offense was stymied. Was so, and the Cyclone defense played great. Was that more to do with how great the Cyclone defense played, or did West Virginia's offense just have an awful game? Right, because that's the same Cyclone defense that got beat up by Oklahoma State one week ago, despite a big Cyclone win. Last week, the defense got beat up against Oklahoma State. So what was different this week against West Virginia that allowed the defense to be so dominant after they looked so flimsy the week before? Kyle, what do you think about that? I just think it came down to the fact that the defense came out to play. Um, and I believe that West Virginia was overlooking this game and looking on to the following week. I believe that West Virginia was looking past a 2-3 and three Iowa State team coming in and saying oh this is going to be a cakewalk and our defense had something to say about that yes Oklahoma State was able to move the ball and push the ball effectively um, we were in a pretty raucous environment down in Stillwater Stillwater usually is a tough place to play and I believe that the crowd was able to get into it and affect the West Virginia offense as well the West Virginia offense really just looked somewhat incompetent which was kind of a surprise as Dana Holgerson is a very very impressive offensive minded head coach and I don't know maybe the West Virginia offense is in a funk right now last week they played KU and they really struggled on offense against KU as well credit to KU's defense I don't know how many times we'll ever say that in our lifetime but yeah, the West Virginia offense might be in a funk right now. I mean, you can't really say they struggled against KU. Grant, they right, they turned the ball over four times, but if you look at the stats, they still had almost 500 yards of offense in that game. So despite, right, they didn't have trouble moving the football against KU. So I wouldn't say their offense was, was stymied by KU. They but. just struggled to get the ball into the end zone and score score the football against KU's defense. A lot of that was due to the turnovers, but that's mainly on Will Greer, and I think right now Will Greer is in a funk leading that offense. Their run game was 
okay against the Cyclones. They managed 80-some-odd yards against our our defense. Um, a lot of those yards were taken away by the sacks, the minus 33 yards that Will Greer had from sacks and from rushing attempts. But their their run game, is, I think, was all right, was manageable, but the passing game was was bad. Yeah, and their the their inability to inability to stay in front of the chains really killed them too. Right when they were behind the chains, we forced them into situations where we knew they were going to have to pass, and right then we were just able to we were able to drop into coverage, right? And Will Greer just had nowhere to go. So I'd agree that Will Greer is just not being able to find open receivers as much as he's he's holding on to the ball for too long. Right, some of those times where he had that much time to throw, at some point he's just got to throw it away instead of taking those sacks. I think a lot of that is his internal clock has to be ticking quicker, just to throw the ball away in some of those situations instead of taking those those bad sacks like he did, putting him behind the chains. He was he was just trying to be a hero, and all, going along with that, the offense kind of shot itself in a in the foot a couple of times. They it seemed like they were getting ahead of the chains, and then they would get a penalty, which would push him back, and then they'd be right back behind the chains where they were again. And just as a real crushing blow to them, not getting across the 50 yard line, you have to imagine that that was inside their heads. They wanted that big play in order to push the ball downfield, get energy on the sideline. Um, but it just really didn't happen. There was energy on the sideline after that blocked field goal return for a touchdown. But basically after that, that sideline was pretty much empty. Yeah, I feel like I feel like Iowa State did a good job controlling the momentum of the game. Outside of that block field goal return for a touchdown, I felt like Iowa State had the momentum for the entire game except there. And I felt that was huge. It kept that crowd at Jack Trice into the game, kept them loud, kept them engaged. I think that was big in disrupting the West Virginia offense. Can we talk about how well Matt Campbell has has done against like top ten teams? Matt Campbell now in the last two years with Iowa State has three wins against top ten teams. That's more than like that's more than like Jim Harbaugh, who only has one win against a top ten team in his career. All in the month of October. October is Cyclone Football Month. Very and spooky. Very spooky yes. month of Cyclone Football. Nobody wants to come to Jack Trice Stadium in October. Apparently nobody wants to play the Cyclones in October. Yeah, I'd be I'd 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 be a little scared if I was Texas Tech coming to town in two weeks for homecoming. Jack Trice is going to be packed again, and we're going to be ready to ready to get another W there. It's going to be spooky for homecoming this year. It is. So, Kyle, now that we've got this big win over West Virginia, the schedule definitely takes a takes a turn for the easy for for Iowa State here. Do you think that even with two conference losses already, there's any chance that uh, Iowa State could find their way into the uh, into the Big 12 championship game? It's going to be tough. Uh, we still have to travel to Austin to play the Longhorns, and the Longhorns have looked good. They struggled a little bit against Baylor this week, um, but overall the Longhorns have looked pretty good. Their defense is really good. That'll be a defensive game between the Cyclones and the Longhorns uh, here coming up soon. And we just we just have to take care of business mainly. Case we have to play K State at home, KU on the road, Texas Tech at home. We have to win those games. Texas Tech did come off of a big win in Fort Worth as they knocked off TCU in conference play on Thursday night. And we all know that TCU is a 
the team that we lost to already in conference. So I think I think that'll be a very good game. I think if we win that game and if we pull out that Texas victory, then I will start to believe that we have a chance at the Big 12 championship. But for right now, we need some help from other teams um, as Oklahoma, Texas, and West Virginia still all sit above us with losses to Oklahoma already in a win over West Virginia, that Texas game is going to be huge for us. Plus we're going to need those three teams to beat up on each other a little bit. Yeah. West Virginia still has to play both Texas and Oklahoma at some point this year. So one, one of Texas, at least one of Texas, West Virginia and Oklahoma is going to end up with at least one more loss than they already have just by nature of the fact that they have to play each other. So I don't think there's, I don't think there's a good chance by any means that Iowa state finds their way into the Big 12 championship game. But th- with that win against West Virginia, they cemented themselves as, as having a chance. The schedule stacks up very favorably. If you can get past Texas Tech, you get two, re- easy, we get two easier games against Baylor and KU before you have to have to go to Austin. So I think the schedule stacks up really nicely for the Cyclones here. And we'll, we'll have to see if, if the Cyclones still haven't lost again before that Texas game. I think we can we can start to think that maybe they actually have a chance for that Big Twelve championship. Our bowl game, game chances, though, on the other hand, went up significantly with yeah. this win over West Virginia. I mean, on our schedule, we saw wins over. Correct me if I'm wrong. KU, K State, and Baylor. So that was three wins, and we were sitting previously sitting at two and three. That put us at five wins. So we needed another win. Um, so we had to find a win, so we found the win over West Virginia, and I like our chances to at least get to six wins this season now. Yeah, I agree. I think I'm not going to say a bowl game is a should because like, stranger things could happen, right? There's there's no way it's guaranteed at this point. There's no guarantee until we get to those, until we get to that six win fret. But I'd say it's about eighty five percent. I'm going to even eighty five percent chance to go to a bowl game at this point. Maybe it's even better than that. Are we writing that down? No, we're not writing that. Okay. What I, you don't write down a percentage. You don't know how that works. How long? How long have we been doing this, and you still don't know how it works? We could, we could write down your percentage there. That that doesn't make it. You can't prove a percentage. That that doesn't work. It's it's not empirically provable. You can okay. You can prove a percentage. You can't prove, prove whether I was right with that percentage. Correct. You can't prove a prediction percentage. So no, we're not writing that down because it can't be proven. So be quiet. Come on, Kyle. Remember the three Ps. You can't prove a prediction percentage. Parallel, pointed, and perpendicular. Marching band, high step fundamentals. The three Ps. Your thigh is parallel, your shin is perpendicular, and your toe is pointed. Let's uh, keep it moving with some more sports talk, though, yeah? All right. Move on to uh, some of the uh, results from the NFL games here. And what is this, week six? Is this week six of the NFL season? Pretty sure it is. Three, two, yeah, three plus two plus one is six. So this is week six of the NFL season. Sorry, I had to go through the Vikings record to figure out what week it was. Week six of the NFL season here. We had some uh, some interesting games. Personally, I think the most exciting game of the day so far was the uh, Bears-Dolphins game. They were going back and forth. The uh, Bears scored a touchdown to go up, uh, go up 28-21 with about three minutes left in that game. And then they decided they wanted to stop tackling, and they let Miami, a four-yard slant from Miami, go for a 75-yard touchdown that um, Miami took to tie the game. Uh, that game ended up going to overtime. Miami drives all the way down the field. They've got it third and goal at the one-yard line. 
They hand it off to Drake, who proceeds to fumble. All right, fumbling at the goal line. Would not recommend, but interesting strategy. Bears drive down. They miss a 50-some yard, maybe high 40s, low 50s yard field goal. The Dolphins drive down to kick a game-winning field goal. The, that was a game that the Bears... This is the, the Bears are now 3-2. Uh, and two. This is the second game that the Bears, Bears definitely had, right? They should have had week one against the Packers. It took uh, Aaron Rodgers' minor miracle for them to lose that game. And now this one to the Dolphins is another one that they really should have had. They were in a position to win. I don't know if I'm quite ready to buy into the Bears yet. Right, they've shown great promise. That defense is really good, but they just haven't shown that in crunch time they can hang on to win the game. Sure, they did against Arizona when they played Arizona, but Arizona's 1-5. Right, when they play a team that actually has talent and has shown that they, can, they have a chance to be a contender, the Bears have, have choked a little bit in late-game situations. They're talented, and they're moving in the right direction, but I'm not necessarily ready to believe completely buy into the Bears for this season. I don't know what either of you two think about that. But The Bears were looking really good prior to, well, really this week. Um, they've had their ups and downs, as you pointed out. But overall, I think the Bears did have a good shot. They're still still trying to get better. I, I'm not quite sure where they're going to be going at from here, but I'm also slightly biased. I do like the Bears uh, quite a bit. If we throw it back real quick to where they fumbled on the one in overtime, what was interesting about that is it was fumbled on the one, but then recovered in the end zone. Yes. If that didn't happen... And the Bears were on the one. I see where this is going. I see where this is going. Are you thinking that there could have been a safety to a game, win the game? A walk-off safety. A game-winning safety. A walk-off safety. A game-ending safety. That would be the highlight of my life a walk, in regards to NFL. A walk-off safety certainly would have been the most exciting play in the NFL this week. Should it have happened. But unfortunately, it was recovered in the end zone for a touchback. And we didn't get that opportunity, but I would have been super excited for that uh, for that walk off safety. I was watching that game, and I was hoping, but it didn't happen, unfortunately. As of right now, I believe that from what I've seen with the Bears, I believe they are a fringe wild card team. I think when it gets towards the end of the season, they won't be able to hold back the Vikings or the Packers either in that division. So maybe they will make the playoffs, maybe not, just with the level of inconsistency I've seen from them throughout the season. I don't know if they're they're a set playoff team for this year. Yeah, I don't know. But, I mean, the Vikings and Packers haven't inspired much confidence in me either in order to beat the Bears. The Vikings have been incredibly inconsistent. They managed to beat Arizona today, but the offensive line looked awful again. Kirk Cousins was sacked five to, or four times sorry, and had seven passes deflected at the line of scrimmage, one of which he caught, by the way. Kirk Cousins did have a pass to himself. It went for minus one yard, so maybe he should have just dropped it. But you know his fourth down. Drew, so Brees, give it a Drew Brees did that on Monday Night Football as well. Yeah, you're right. He's completed like eight passes to himself in his career. It's pretty weird. He has. But anyway, yeah, so the Vikings aren't inspiring much confidence in me despite that win, especially the offensive line. They really need Riley Leaf to come back and be healthy and that offensive line to really gel. Otherwise, I don't think with that offensive line they can really be a true Super Bowl contender, even if that defense is phenomenal like they played again today. 
they only gave up 10 points if you take away the seven points that Arizona scored on a fumble recovery for a touchdown, another Kirk Cousins fumble. He has trouble holding on to the football, and the fact that the offensive line can't protect him doesn't help. And, I mean, the Packers have lost to the Lions and Redskins. Neither of those two Neither of those two results give you the utmost confidence in, in the Packers. So. Both both Packers' losses came on the road, too, so they've only been able to win at Lambeau Field, which doesn't bode well going down the stretch either, as they have to go to Chicago um, in order to play the Bears at the towards the end of the season. So right now that NFC North division is up for grabs, I would say. Yeah, I think I think so. I think it's one of the one of the more interesting division races we're going to have in in football coming down the stretch. That and the AFC South, I think, are going to be the two most interesting division races we have. Nobody wants to win the AFC South right now. I mean, Jacksonville didn't look good at all today. Houston could win it. They're tied, and who else is tied in that division? Indy doesn't look good. The so Titans. It's not them. The as Titans well. are also tied. They didn't score any points today, though, so they don't want it either. The Titans have been up and down. The Titans beat Jacksonville, what, 9-6 to six back in Week 3? That was one of the crazy things that happened in Week 3. And since then, Jacksonville has kind of looked like they're in a funk a little bit, especially on offense. But their defense, supposedly the one of the top two, top five defenses in the league, gave up 40 points to the Cowboys today. So Jacksonville's defense is struggling a little bit right now as well so that division is up in the air but the rams continue to run away with their division so to speak right now they are they have moved to 6 and 0 after beating the denver broncos today and they ran all over that denver broncos defense todd Gurley rushed for over 200 yards and the game was close towards the end Denver did put up a fight. Case Keenum ended up throwing for over 300 yards, but it looks like he's been in a funk. I've heard some people calling for a midseason firing of Vance Joseph. Do you think that is the right move for the Denver Broncos? I, I, I don't really think so. I don't know if firing coaches really, really make sense midseason in the NFL. You're not going to give that team a significant jump. Right, you're not firing the coach isn't going to turn him from a non-playoff team into a playoff team. There's no reason to fire him at this point in the season. I don't think the Denver Broncos going into the season were even thinking that they were going to be a playoff team. Yeah, I don't. I just don't think that firing coaches at this point in the season makes sense in the NFL. It's not. It doesn't make that much. Not going to make that much of a difference as far as overall record. But what we really should talk about here is everyone. Uh, everyone is questioning the uh, Vikings' decision to move on from Case Keenum and Sam Bradford and go with Kirk Cousins. But if you look at the results from Case Keenum and Sam Bradford, right? Sam Bradford has now been benched in Arizona. He hasn't played in a couple of weeks. So even on a 1-5 and Arizona team, he can't get in. Being replaced by a rookie quarterback. Who the Vikings handled fairly well today with that defense. And then you've got Case Keenum, who's who's been good in Denver. He had, He's been good, but... Again, he hasn't been able to replicate that magic that he had last year. So I think the Vikings definitely made the right decision in going out to get Kirk Cousins. Whether or not he's worth all the money that they paid him, we'll still have to see. That's still up for debate. But going out and getting an external option definitely seems like it was the right decision at this point for Minnesota. I think he's definitely been an upgrade. The I haven't seen 
as much as I'd, I've liked to out of that run game from the Vikings. Granted, they did run the ball very effectively today. Granted, they were playing Arizona, but they were still able to run the ball really well, even with Dalvin Cook being out. So I think a lot of the load is still going to be placed on Kirk Cousins, and I do think he is a significant upgrade over Case Keenum and Sam Bradford. Case Keenum has already thrown more interceptions this season than he did all of last season when he was with the Vikings. He has thrown eight so far. And yeah, I just believe that those weren't the best two options going forward in Minnesota. It would have been interesting to see what had happened if they had kept Teddy Bridgewater, though, um, to see what Teddy Bridgewater could have done because he had a phenomenal preseason with the Jets. But yeah, I do think Kirk Cousins was the right call. I still don't know if he was worth that much money, but they had to they had to entice him somehow to get him to Minnesota. Yeah, I think that I think that comeback against the Packers in that game week two game that resulted in a tie showed a lot of what you need to know about Kirk Cousins that he was ready for the big stage. So I think it was the right decision so far. But having Dalvin Cook back will definitely be a huge improvement for that for that offense and hopefully he can get healthy. He's been just plagued by injuries over the course of his two seasons. Hopefully at some point he can get healthy and contribute to this Vikings offense. That that did go back to his time playing at Florida State, though. He did have the injury bug in his college days as well. So he is a he is a very good running back. I would agree with that. It We just hope to see him back on the field in order to help the Vikings at some point. But speaking of other good running backs, Melvin Gordon is leading the Chargers right now kind of on a tear. The Chargers have only lost two games so far and they have lost to the first and second best team in the league as of right now according to the NFL power rankings that being the Chiefs and the Rams and the Chargers are sitting at four and two are the Chargers the are the Chargers a top five team in the league right now and are they the second best team in the AFC I don't know if I'd uh they're definitely not the second best team in the AFC right now. New England is the second best team in the AFC. Right? Until until that team goes on the downturn, New England has to be in that conversation for the top two teams in the conference. And I still don't think the Chargers necessarily crack that top five in the league, but they're definitely really close. They've cemented themselves as a team that that is not going to be an easy win for anybody, right? Despite, you know, their their home field advantage being virtually uh non-existent in Los Angeles. They play in a soccer stadium. That tends to be filled with more opposing fans than it does home fans. If you go and look at pictures, especially from that Chiefs game out in out in LA, you'll see more Chiefs fans in the stands than you will Chargers fans. There was a lot of red. And how many, I think it's only about thirty to 40,000 people that that soccer stadium can seat. So it's definitely not going, it's not like going to any other NFL stadium in the league and it's not... It, there really isn't a significant home field advantage compared to playing in Arrowhead Stadium or going to Foxborough and playing the Patriots. Yeah, the uh, yeah the Chargers Stadium does hold just under thirty thousand people, which is only and it's usually not sold out, which means usually under twenty thousand as far as attendance. Which, if you just want some perspective. D3 football between uh, St. John's University and University of St. Thomas, Minnesota, 
got almost 19,000 people there. So sometimes the uh, charges in the NFL don't even draw as well as a D3 football game. So just let that sink in for a minute and then uh, think about that and maybe the Chargers weren't the brightest idea to move. But they're playing really good football right now despite all of that. They were my dark horse team. And I write that down prediction that I had before the uh, before we started this podcast, before the season, NFL season started, I said that the Chargers would go to the Super Bowl as I write that down prediction. So they have been my dark horse candidate. Looking a lot more likely now at, as opposed to looking at it back in week three. I was going to say, in week three, I had uh, I was really disappointed in that as they were sitting at one and two. But then as I realized how good the Rams and Chiefs are and how well they've played these last these last three weeks, I agree that uh, that it's looking... I still don't... Th- it's, it's still a long shot, but I'm a lot more confident in it than I was three weeks ago. That's for sure. We're going to segue into some baseball here. We're right in the prime of the postseason with the uh, NLD, uh, NLCS and ALCS uh, going on right now. The uh, Brewers and Dodgers are tied at one game apiece as we are heading out to, as that series is heading out to LA. And the uh, Red Sox and Astros, the Astros took game one to take a 1-0 series lead. And as we are recording this, Game 2 is getting played, and Boston is currently leading. So we'll have to see how that shakes out. But anyway, what I want to talk about here first is is that Brewers bullpen. right? Just the way that it's been used and how effective it is. I think that Brewers bullpen is one of the more underrated bullpens in baseball history. Not only are they pitching very good innings, but they are also hitting home runs off of arguably one of the best pitchers of this time in Clayton Kershaw. Yeah, so for those of you who don't know what we're talking about, so uh, for game one of that NLCS, uh, Gio Gonzalez started for the Brewers. He pitched an effective two innings, gave up one run over two innings, and then he got pulled for, what was his name, Woodruff or something like that. Uh, So after two innings, they pulled for Woodruff. Woodruff comes in, and it's a home run off Clayton Kershaw. It's only the fourth time in his career Clayton Kershaw has ever given up a home run to a pitcher, and it came against came against Woodruff, of all people. And then that Brewers bullpen pitched seven innings and managed to hold on to that lead. So that was just phenomenal performance by the Brewers bullpen. But that trio of, of Josh Hader, Corey Knable, and uh, Jeffers is one of the one of the best and most underrated trios in baseball history. They all strike out more than 30% of the batters that they face, and that's just insane. What are you supposed to do when, when one-third of the batters don't even put the ball in play, right? Not many good things happen when you don't put the ball in play. So that Brewers bullpen has just been phenomenal. Now, they had some hiccups uh, in Game 2. Jeffers ended up taking the loss, but I think that bullpen is incredibly underrated and can carry them quite a long way. Tomorrow night, the Brewers will spin Chasen against Bueller, and Bueller has been kind of a surprise pitcher this year for the Dodgers. Um, kind of called upon midseason due to injury, and he's been pitching well for for LA. We'll see how he does uh, starting Game Three at home in Los Angeles for them. Yeah. Baseball does the uh, 2-3-2 playoff format, so two games in Milwaukee, and then it'll be three in L.A. and two more in Milwaukee. So it's interesting. So since the Dodgers took one of the games in Milwaukee, in theory they could 
win the next three in LA and Milwaukee and and uh, Milwaukee wouldn't see another home game. So it's it's always interesting that you could have that scenario that happens. That's the one disadvantage of that uh, two three two playoff format. But I think the Brewers are going to find a way to win at least one game in LA, if not two, and send that series back to back to Milwaukee for for a game six and maybe even a game seven. I love game sevens. Game sevens are a ton of fun. Game sevens are very exciting. They're more exciting in hockey than any other sport. It doesn't get more exciting than a hockey game seven. The hockey playoffs are phenomenal. If you're not a hockey fan, when the hockey playoffs roll around this spring, you got to watch some playoff hockey. It is intense. It is the best. Nothing is better than playoff hockey. Baseball is my favorite sport, but nothing is better than playoff hockey. Did the... I'm struggling to remember. Did the Cubs and the Indians go to a Game 7 in the World Series two years ago? Or was that one in Game 6? I think that was one in Game 7. Game 7. I'll need to double check. I recall watching the last game. I don't remember if it was 6 or 7. Because 7, like seven though. Cause winning a Game 7 in the World Series is very exciting baseball to watch. Going back, because the Giants and the Royals did it in 2014 with uh, the Giants winning in Game 7 spinning Madison Bumgarner out of the bullpen for three innings, but what's the what's the update on it, that? It, it was it was game seven. It was a seven game world game series. Game seven. So two- yeah, they're one of the most exciting things in all of sports is a game seven in the World Series. All coming down to one game winner take all for that for that trophy. What was great about the twenty sixteen World Series too was uh it was Cubs versus Indians, uh again, and both of those teams had the the, the longest streak without having won a World Series, if I'm not mistaken. The Indians were second to the Cubs, having the 108-year... That, that sounds draft. correct. I believe that was right. So, yeah, that's interesting. That's, uh, I, yeah, I just love Game 7s. I remember I was watching that, that Cubs-Indians Game 7. Kyle and I were watching it, and I think we were in my dorm when watching that game, and we were that was, that was pretty fun. It was pretty fun to just, when the Cubs won, you could hear people all around the dorm... They were getting super excited about that win. It was crazy to hear everybody out on Welch as well. We we were living in Friley at the time, which is one of the residence halls here at Iowa State, and just hearing everybody out on Welch, which is the area where everybody goes to celebrate. Main it was Street Bar. Main Street Bar. It was it was a pretty great atmosphere just to hear that and have the windows open and hear everything that was going on even all the way up here on the north side of campus where i was at at the time people were running down the down the sidewalks with w flags behind them wearing all chicago gear it oh it was late it would have been almost midnight probably yeah that game got that game went really late two innings that was a a late game but that that was that was an amazing time that last uh i think it was the throw to rizzo the out at first is what ended that game that was that was just amazing so good oh Anyway, we got on a little bit sidetracked there. We want to talk a little bit about the uh, AL series here between the uh, Astros and Red Sox. It's two really potent lineups, but also two really phenomenal pitching staffs for both Houston and Boston. On one side, you've got Sale and Price. On the other side, you've got Verlander and Cole. It's an interesting series to see how much but, but you've got two potent offenses too, so it's going to be interesting to see who wins, whether it's going to be the uh, the offenses or the defenses, if this is going to be a high-scoring series or a low-scoring series. I'm really interested to see 
how that turns out. Based on game one and uh, what's currently going on in game two here, it looks like it's going to tend to be more of a high-scoring series, but it'll be interesting to see uh, how that develops. Pitching definitely came into an effect with game one, um, where the Red Sox ended up giving up 10 walks, I believe. So 10 walks is one of one of the highest uh single game um like amount of walks given up in a game for a playoff series correct me if i'm wrong on that one i think so i think i said and that. so yeah pitching pitching was a big deal for that and the astros really benefit benefited from that so we'll see how that goes going forward i just believe that it's really going to come down to how well can the offenses do against these three and four starters for the Astros. They've already announced they're turning to Keuchel and Charlie Morton for games three and four. So it'll be interesting to see if the Red Sox can hit effectively off of them. And if they can grab a, a significant hold on that series as it goes to Houston after tonight's game, or will the Astros be able to have the back end of their rotation really help them out going forward in this series? Yeah, I think that's where I agree that it'll come down to uh, those pitching matchups with the three and three and four starters of each team. All right, what one more topic here we want to talk about before we get to our uh, write that down predictions for the week is the uh, the Jimmy Butler saga that developed here over this last week. So for those for those of you who haven't been following it, so don't you what happened? Jimmy Butler has uh, requested a trade from the Timberwolves. Apparently, he doesn't like the work ethic of Andrew Wiggins and Carl Anthony Towns, which, I mean, is somewhat understandable, especially with Andrew Wiggins. Uh, stat given to us by uh, another loyal listener, thanks, Andy, was that according to the advanced metrics, Andrew Wiggins uh, only, uh, I don't remember what the exact word, only like gives high effort on 4% of his plays. So understandable with, uh, understandable that, uh, Jimmy Butler is a little bit upset with their uh, effort. But anyway, so he requested a trade from the Timberwolves. And so the Timberwolves have been have been receiving trade uh, trade requests from him, but they uh, still haven't dealt him. So earlier this week, he uh, came back to his first practice with the team. And uh, while he was out the practice, he uh, cussed out uh, Scott Layden, the Timberwolves GM, Cussed out Tom Thibodeau, the uh, coach and president of basketball operations, and he cussed out the rest of the team all before taking the uh, Timberwolves' third team in a scrimmage and uh, beating the Timberwolves' starters in that scrimmage. And, oh yeah, all of it was just for show because he had ESPN on hand who he was doing an interview with right after practice just to bypass all the tough questions the local media would have for him that because the local media that actually really cares about the Timberwolves organization, unlike ESPN that just cares about stories. So he bypassed all those hard questions from the Wolves media to go right to ESPN from that. And then there's just been a ton of controversies coming after that. It came out, it was reported that the Timberwolves had a, a team meeting the next day with Jimmy Butler where they talked through the season, but then multiple players tweeted that there was no players only meeting, so they can't the team can't even agree on uh whether or not they had a meeting or not. Apparently 
There was a trade in place with the Heat where Jimmy Butler was going to Miami as uh, as Pat Riley and Tom Thibodeau were about to finalize that trade. Uh, Tom Thibodeau asked for one more piece in that trade and then reportedly uh, Pat Riley called him a mother effer and hung up the phone. It has just been an interesting uh, saga with Jimmy Butler here. And uh, now it came out that he says he's going to play when the season starts here this upcoming week. But I really just don't know what to expect for Jimmy Butler, whether or not the Timberwolves should even let him play with how much he's disrespected their, this organization here in this last week especially, and the fact that he hasn't been practicing with the team. I just think that Butler has been a whiner and a diva, and that he's done this in both places he's played, right? He's got upset and forced his way out of Chicago, and now he's doing the same thing out of Minnesota. He says he wants to win, but he's set up with an organization right now that's built to win in the future, and he wants to get traded to an organization that is no chance of success this year, even with him on it. He says he's a leader, but he certainly isn't leading by example with how he's playing or with, with his actions this year. So I, or this week especially. So I really don't think that, I really lost a lot of respect for Jimmy Butler this year. He's turned, or this week, he's turned himself into a diva and a distraction instead of a basketball player. And in that interview with ESPN and with Rachel Nichols, he's, he quote on, he quoted or I'm quoting him, he said it was just, he was just doing it out of passion for playing the game. And if you were passionate for playing the game and wanting to win, wouldn't you want to try to do anything you can to win with the organization that you are a part of, rather than creating this whole dramatic experience trying to get into a different organization where you might be just as unsatisfied Because right now, the teams that are already built to win don't really have room for Jimmy Butler and don't want to add him right now, right before the season starts, to create more drama to their team. So that's that's where I stand on that, and I don't think there's going to be a lot of teams who are going to want to add if they're going to if they're wanting to win right now. They're not going to want to add him. Yeah, and if if I'm the Timberwolves, right, you you have to decide what you're going to do with Jimmy Butler, right? If you can't find a, a way to a trade him here before the season starts. I mean, you have to make a decision if you're going to let him play for this team or not with what he's with what he's done, right? With these outbursts, right? You have to decide if he if you, you're going to let a player get away with disrespecting the organization like that, right? With with what he did, right? You could easily just just tell him he's not going to play this year with how he's just with what he's done this season. You could just, you tell him he's getting traded and he's not going to play until that happens. I, I assume they're going to let him play because they want to win, right? And he, he is their best or second best player on that team, debatable with Carl Anthony Towns. So the team is definitely better with Jimmy Butler on it. Don't get me wrong. He is an incredible basketball player, but I don't know if you can let him play with what he's done to this organization. I assume they're going to, but man, he's just, been awful to this organization, especially in the last week, and I, I'm not very happy about it, and I don't really even like I like NBA basketball that much, and I'm a little fired up about this Jimmy Butler situation. It'll certainly be interesting to see what happens with him once the NBA season starts uh, this week. Tuesday, right? The 16th, if I'm not mistaken? Yeah, Tuesday. Uh, Timberwolves don't start until either Wednesday or Thursday, but yeah, first, the, the first NBA season, games yeah. are on Tuesday, that's correct. Should be an interesting year. Cool. Uh, I think we're about ready now to segue into the 8311 cast, write that down predictions. 
Um, yeah. Let's start with you, Mike, since oh, you have the... We, uh... we, we got to start with our uh, accountability session. Oh, we do, we do, we do. Call, so call. we had one prediction come off the uh, 8311 board, This uh, write that down prediction board this week. This was a prediction from our uh, for, the fourth member of 8311, Josh, who uh, has not made an appearance on this uh, podcast yet. But his prediction was that the Brewers would sweep the Dodgers in the NLCS. We'll give him a big old nah, nah for that prediction. We gave so, him a triple on that one, yeah, so but that one is now off the board. Yeah, because he was incorrect with the Dodgers winning game two. That was the only prediction that came off the board this week. We have some other ones that aren't looking so promising, but we will cross those off the board when we get there. True. We don't 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 jump the gun and cross any of them off early. Let's go and get started with our current week's prediction. We'll start with Mike since you have the. Uh, the less, less uh, outlandish, I think, out of the three that we have this week. Okay, potentially. So, so uh, my my prediction for this week is that the San Francisco Forty ers will go into Green Bay tomorrow on Monday Night Football and beat the Green Bay Packers. Write that down. I'll give you a single. A sing ESPN. Says that there's less than a twenty percent chance that, that happens. You're gonna give me a single for something with less than a twenty percent chance of happening? Are you kidding me? ESPN's win predictors. Uh, I don't like win ESPN predictor wins do you tr- predictor. Who's, who's win predictor? Do you trust then? Nobody's. <laughs> well, the, the one inside the, my head. And 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 you and you think CJ Beathard has 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 a better than twenty percent chance of going into Green Bay and beating Aaron Rodgers? Okay, everybody has to give the underdog a chance every once in a while, right? Okay, I'm upset that you're just giving me a single for that, but we can discuss that later. Uh, Kyle, what's your write-that-down prediction? My write-that-down prediction for the week... He forgot it. He had to read it again. He couldn't remember the, what it was. The Cyclones' defense will finish as the number one ranked defense in the Big 12 this season. Uh, number one ranked defense as far as points allowed, yards allowed. We need to clarify this prediction. Points allowed and yards allowed. Oh, both. So they will finish Ooh. with the least yards both, per game both and categories. the least points allowed per game. Okay. In in both categories, what do you think? Double, triple? If he's going both categories, what do you think for that? Why? I'm thinking a double. The Cyclones defense is looking pretty dang strong this entire season. I think okay. it's only going to get better from here. Okay. We'll give him a double for that prediction. All right, Wyatt. Now we're on to your uh, <laughs> definitely not going to happen, right? That down prediction. I'm thinking about prediction. buzzing it right now, but I oh, can't please yet. Don't. So this is actually from our good friend, uh, Ethan Lambert. I'm stealing it from him. Going to be using as my write down that write that down prediction this week because I have a huge inclination towards safeties. My prediction is the Cyclones will average one safety per game in this 2018 season. So just as an update on where we're at right now, the Cyclones have two safeties in six games. So that means in their remaining five, six, or seven, or eight games, no, uh, yeah, five, six, or seven games, depending on how the season shakes out. They would have to get nine, ten, or eleven safeties in order for that time. So we're giving him a home run for that. This is our first home run prediction that is going on the uh, eighty-three eleven. Write that down, board. It's going to happen. But I'm going to shoot. Gonna I'm going to shoot Matt Campbell an email and tell him to prioritize getting safeties. You, you don't have Matt Campbell's email. You, you may have Jamie Pollard's email, but you don't have Matt Campbell's email. Ooh. I don't think Matt Campbell is going to listen to you on that one either. Jamie Pollard might. I'm sure he would love. The defense playing really well, but I don't think his whole intent is going to be to shoot for safeties. Because well, it should. 
that means that we should stop all of our drives on the 40-yard line and punt, pinning them inside the five, and then hope to get a safety. It's not going to happen. Not going to happen. Hey, it might happen. We are already way behind the ball on that one. Yeah, you're right. Well, thanks for listening to this week's episode of the 8311 cast. Tune in every Monday for a new episode and subscribe to our feed on iTunes, Spotify, and now on Google Play Music. Find us on Instagram at 8311cast. Signing off for the 8311 cast. Kyle Mersch. Mike Ludwig. And me, Wyatt Teeter. Also, as a side note, you should you should rate us on iTunes or to however you listen to us. That would be a big help if you would you'd yeah. give us a rate. Please also well. give us feedback. Please message us on twitter you can now message us on instagram follow our instagram account at 8311 cast we are now on instagram we will continue posting and updating that as we go so be sure to give us your comments and our and feedback and please submit requests that of information and topics that you would like to hear on our show yeah then, then all the, the the listener request topics won't be from my family so far they've all been from my family thanks family for listening to me and then you might not have to just listen to the central based teams in the midwest please give us some feedback positive feedback critical feedback whatever you have in your mind drop us a line either as kyle said on our social media pages or on our contact page at 8311 slash contact uh, thanks again for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye.